can all have a seat. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nate, and I'm one of the pastors here at Soma. And uh, pray with me, if you will, this morning as we get started. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your presence. Lord, we thank you that you are alive. Lord, and we thank you that you call us to be your people. We pray that you would be present with us this morning as we come close to you, to know you, and have relationship with you and with one another. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So uh, we're going to dismiss our kids here in just a few minutes. But before we do, um, we have some stories to tell this morning. This morning, I have one thing I want everyone to know. And there's only one thing you have to remember from anything that I say. Just remember, he is alive. Jesus is alive. For the last year, we have been sharing through uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and then through Jesus' kind of final words to his disciples in John, we've been talking about all these things that Jesus said. Jesus said this, and Jesus said this, and Jesus said this. This morning, I do not want anyone here to miss the fact that Jesus is alive. And when we talk about Jesus, we talk about having a relationship with Jesus. We're not just talking about knowing things about him. We're not talking about just remembering things that he said, but that this is a living person with whom you can have a relationship with. When, uh, when we lived in South America, my wife Deb and I, and you're going to hear from Deb here in a couple minutes, but when my wife Deb and I lived in South America, we would talk to people about Jesus. We would say, um, we want you to know Jesus. And people would say, oh, I do know Jesus. Only problem was the Jesus that everyone in South America knew, that everyone in Argentina knew, was one of two different Jesus. See, there's a lot of Jesuses. I don't know if you all know this. I don't know how many of you all have seen uh, the movie uh, Talladega Nights, and the great theologian Ricky Bobby is praying for their dinner of KFC and the always delicious Taco Bell. And he prays, and he starts praying to sweet baby Jesus. He says, dear sweet Baby Jesus with your cherub cheeks, so cute and cuddly, yet still omnipotent. Can't even change your diapers. You know, he starts praying to baby Jesus. And then the father-in-law on the scene gets real mad, right? And he's like, Jesus was a man. He had a beard, you know. And he's like, and then uh, his buddy's like, I like my Jesus with a tuxedo shirt that says, I like to party, you know. And his kid's like, I want my Jesus to be a ninja, you start realizing that there are all kinds of Jesuses. And in South America, we experienced that very really. The Jesus that people would say that they knew was one of two Jesuses. He was either dead Jesus, hanging on a cross, possibly laying his body limp in his mother's arms, or he was baby Jesus, also sweet, cherub-faced, glow around his head, sitting in his mother's arms. And when you start talking about dead Jesus and sweet baby Jesus, someone else has the power in those circumstances. And it's not Jesus. It was his mother Mary. And it was easy to think, okay, that's the way they thought about it in Argentina, and there's all kinds of religious and cultural and historical reasons why that's true. But then I came, when we came back to the States, we realized that there's a lot of Jesuses here too. There's a white California Jesus is one of the most popular, and he's got surfer hair and blonde hair and blue eyes, and he looks like he just stepped out of like an Abercrombie and Fitch catalog, you know. He's kind of like muscular, and he supports uh, the establishment, you know. He's like, he, he, uh, he stands for the flag, and he kneels for the cross, and that's, that's one Jesus that we have, right? That's, that is a Jesus that we have in America. 
that bears no similarity to the Jesus that I read about, to the radical Jesus, to the Jesus that frees slaves and liberates captives. And there's all kinds of these Jesuses that we can create. Each one becomes an idol. Each one becomes a false God. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so when we say to people, we want you to have a relationship with Jesus, oftentimes people don't know the Jesus that we're talking about. And the Jesus that they have in mind is not the Jesus from Scripture. So John, uh, the man who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, he realized this. He wrote his Gospel last. So the first three Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell pretty similar stories of Jesus. And each one is kind of tilted just a little bit to address the cultural needs of the people that were hearing it. Because Jesus is way too big to ever capture you know, and so each one was trying to say to a group, different group of people, to Jews or to Greeks or to Romans, this is who Jesus was. And they all pretty much say the same thing, but, but slightly different, focusing on different things would be meaningful to those people. John wrote last. John wrote years after, probably 30, 40 years after the other men who wrote Gospels wrote. And John basically said, look, we were with him and we touched him and we heard him and he was our friend and he did so much more than you can ever imagine but I just want you to know him and he said in his gospel in John 20 verse uh, 30 now Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name John said like believe that eternal life was knowing Jesus. That word knowing is an intimate, personal word that means having a relationship with him, really knowing him. And so John said, there are seven miracles that I wrote down that really tell you who this man was, who this guy was, so that you can know the true Jesus and not worship sweet little cherub baby Jesus and not worship white surfer Jesus, not worship dead Jesus or whatever other Jesus that people have conjured up in their mind, but to know the real man, the son of God, and to know what he was like and how he lived. So one of the ways that we would share that Jesus with people is to tell the stories that John wrote down. Because he said, these seven stories I wrote down, and they're going to tell you who this guy is. So I'm going to have my wife, Deb, this morning come up, and she's going to share with you guys some of the stories that we would tell people And then I'm going to help kind of uncode them for you a little bit and explain how these stories unpack the real true Jesus who's really truly alive and who's very different than what people expect. So especially for this first story, uh, because it's the same story the kids were going to cover uh, in their time, uh, we've asked the kids to stick around. And so then after uh, Miss Deb shares this story, then uh, the kids can go ahead and be dismissed back for their class, okay? Like Nate said, these stories are all from the book of John, and I'm going to tell you the stories because I think that's a little uh, more alive and present than reading them word for word. Um, And so, um, but I I want you to know they're all in the book of John, and I'm not making parts of them up, okay? (laughs) Um, It's on page 517 in your Bibles, and if you want to go back and check, you should. (laughs) Um, I'm not making these stories up. Um, The first one is from John Uh, chapter 2, and John says this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. So the other ones may or may not have been in the order they really happened, but this one he makes a point of telling us was the first and um, is 
one of my absolute favorite stories of Jesus because what happens is he goes with his mom to a wedding. And so I know you all have mothers. I'm assuming most of you also have moms, right? So um, Jesus goes with his mom and his friends to a wedding in a nearby town, like where he lives. And, um, you know, you're at a wedding with your mom and your friends. And uh, as the wedding is going along, it must have been someone they, they cared about, that they were there. And um, the people who were, had planned the wedding or who were getting married had somehow not planned appropriately. And they ran out of wine in the middle of their wedding feast. Um, my guess is the bride and groom didn't even realize it had happened at first, you know. Um, they were doing their thing and celebrating. Um, but Jesus' mom noticed, like moms do, that they were out of wine, and she was concerned. And so she says to Jesus, and I, I like the way it's all phrased because I, I feel like I can put myself in this situation. She doesn't ask him for anything. She says, Jesus, they're out of wine. <laughs> and he says, um, why are you asked, why are you putting, why are you asking this of me? This is not my time. <laughs> and she says, nothing more to him. <laughs> says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> That's it. That's her part of the story. <laughs> and then Jesus, I don't know what, what it is that made him decide that was the moment that he was going to do something, but he says, okay. So he tells them there's these huge jars that they had for people to, like, wash themselves as part of their ceremonies or whatever. So we're talking, like, 30-gallon jars of water. And he says, fill them up to the top. There's about six of them. And the servants fill them up to the top. And he says, okay, now take, scoop some out. Take it to the master of ceremonies, whoever was running this party, and um, let him try it. So they do. They take it there. The master of ceremonies drinks it. Takes a drink says to the groom, why did you do this? Usually at a good party, what's been well planned, which these people didn't do, you drink all the best wine first while people are still sober to notice what the wine tastes like. And then as the night goes on, you bring out the cheap wine <laughs> that you, because then by then, who cares, you know? They don't notice anymore. Um, and he says, why did you save the best wine for last? So we're talking this water that Jesus has turned into wine. is isn't just wine. It's like the best wine. <laughs> and, um, and he's deeply impressed. And he is impressed by this wine. And he has no idea that Jesus is the one who made it or that there was a miracle involved in its making at all. The only people who know are those servants and Jesus' disciples who are watching the whole thing. And he says... This was the first miracle that Jesus performed, and his disciples put their faith in him because they saw it. Before we moved on to greater things, we started with wine. Um, and we are going to dismiss our younger kids now, the preschool-aged kids. And again, if you have infants or toddlers, they can go. We're going to keep our older elementary kids with us because we're going to have more stories as we go along. Um, but if the younger kids do want to go to talk about this. But guys, Jesus is alive. He is alive. He's a real person, and he is not at all what you expect him to be. When we would tell the story, people would say, uh, hey, do you want to come to a party? In Argentina, everybody would celebrate uh, uh, quinceañeras, which are uh, 15-year-old birthday parties, basically like a huge party for your daughter. We're on her 15th birthday, everybody would come. They'd party. They'd drink all night. They would have parties for just about everything because being alive and feeling alive with your family in that moment was deeply culturally significant. And people would say, 
oh, you know, we know you guys are evangelicos. You guys are, are, not, are not Catholic. Do, do you guys drink? And we'd say, listen, let me tell you about this time when Jesus was invited to a party and what he did. And we would basically be trying to present to people a Jesus that was not who they thought. Whatever you think about Jesus, whoever you think he is, whatever idea you have in your mind, he's not that. And he shows up at this party. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, Jesus was a good teacher, right? And so we've been focusing on the things that Jesus taught. Jesus had disciples already, right? There were already people, these men, these young men, who were probably like teenagers, young 20s. These were young men. And they were already following this guy around, listening to him. And so they already knew he was a good teacher. So if you're t- Jesus is good teacher, Jesus, he's not what you think he is. Because he was already good teacher, Jesus. But then suddenly, he makes people realize that he cares about joy and life and having a party and celebrating. That is not a Jesus that people think about. But that is our Jesus. And that Jesus is alive. And that is someone that you can have a relationship with. Somebody who actually cares that you're happy. Somebody actually that cares that the wedding feast is wonderful and joyful and fun and somebody who brings out the best, the richest, the most delicious things out of life. That is our Jesus. So a couple of chapters later in John chapter four, um, Jesus has been traveling for a while and um, John tells this story right after the whole story where they've been in Samaria Um, So, you know, he goes to the well and he meets this this sinful woman and whatever. And because of this woman's testimony about the things Jesus said to her, all these Samaritans in this town end up like listening to him and believing him. And then that all ends and they go back to Galilee, which is where they're from. This is Jesus' like hometown area. And when they get back there, it says, John says, Jesus knew that in your hometown, that's where nobody believes you. So that was Jesus' mindset when he went back to Galilee, knowing this was going to be the place where everyone was going to be like, right, right, the carpenter's son, you know. And so they get there, and the first thing they're greeted with is this official, we don't know exactly, but somebody important in their town. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, my son is really sick. And there's just a beat where you can kind of hear Jesus sigh, and he says, unless I do miracles, you're not going to believe in me. This is a seeing is believing situation. So he says, and the guy says, please, please come and heal my son. Please come. He's just desperate. His son must have been deathly ill. And uh, Jesus says, okay, no, but go and he'll be healed. And there's this moment where for this one guy, (laughs) he doesn't wait to see the miracle first to believe it. But he takes Jesus at his word. It says, Jesus said, go home, he'll be healed. And the man believed him and went home. I'm guessing nobody else did. (laughs) But the guy goes home, he meets his servants. And here we have this pivotal moment where we're going to find out, like, it's over. He's, He's already asked Jesus. He's left Jesus now. He's off somewhere else. And he gets home, and the servants are like, you are not going to believe this. Your son is better. And he's like, 
what time did he get better? And they say it was at one in the afternoon, and he realizes that's the exact moment that Jesus said. From far away, he didn't have to be there. He didn't have to touch him. He didn't have to be physically present. He was powerful enough that from where he was, he could say, it's done, and it was done. That story, by the way, is in John 4. It's on page 519, if you want to write that down and read it later. In the environment that we were in, in the neighborhoods that we were in, people were so desperate to have any kind of control, especially to heal their kids. The medical care wasn't always great, and we were working in a really impoverished area. People's kids would get sick, and they'd be desperate. And they would go to, like, they'd call them curanderos, which were witch doctors, like, not the right word exactly, but they were kind of not, they weren't real doctors. And there was this, like, weird religious kind of, like, almost like black magic overtone. And people would look for anything they could. What physically can I get for my kid? And they would get charms, and they would get candles, and they would write things on. They would get special markers to write on illnesses with. Anything physical, tangible, real. How can I know that my kid is going to be okay? And when people would say, my son is sick, my daughter's sick, my baby's sick, we would, we would pray with them, and we would look for ways to help, and we would tell them the story, look, Jesus cares about your child. When a man came to Jesus and said, my son is sick, even though he was far away from him, Jesus still could enter in. Jesus still cared. Jesus can still heal, heal this kid. Even though Jesus isn't physically here and you can't see him, you don't need a charm. You don't need a special bracelet. You don't need to write anything on them in marker. Jesus can heal them. He can heal across distances. Jesus is alive. Jesus is not what you think he is. He doesn't need any kind of special coaxing or urging. Just come and tell him what you need because he loves your child. And it was a way of entering in both to the moment of the pain. And lots of times there were physical things that we could do. Sometimes there was malnutrition. Sometimes there was food. Sometimes there was medicine that was needed. And we could help ask and provide those things. But the biggest thing we wanted people to realize was that Jesus cares because he's alive. He's not an impersonal force that you have to navigate. And if I press the right buttons, say the right words, buy the right charms, then he's going to come and help. No, he's right there right now. He's alive and he will enter in because he does love you. And the very next thing John says um, in chapter 5, they went up to Jerusalem for a feast. And in Jerusalem, uh, apparently, there was this pool of water surrounded by these pillars. And it was believed, it may have been true, I don't know, but they at least believed strongly that from time to time, someone, some spirit would come and touch the water and stir the water. And when that happened, the first person into the pool would be healed of whatever sickness they had. And so um, sick people would come and they would sit near this pool and any kind of sickness, whatever, they would hang out near it waiting for the water to like be stirred up. And when that happened, they would try to get into the water while it still had its healing power. Um, and so Jesus and his disciples are in, in the city for the feast and they're walking through this and Jesus sees this man and he's paralyzed, he's crippled, he can't walk at all and he's laying next to this pool waiting to be healed. And John says the man had been uh, had been paralyzed like this for 37 years. <laughs> 
So, you know, longer than most of you have been alive. <laughs> Not all of us, but some of you. <laughs> um, he, that was his whole life. He, had, he couldn't walk. He couldn't move. And he'd obviously been laying here attempting to be healed for a while. Because Jesus goes over to him and he says, you know, do you want to be healed? And the man, still thinking about the pool because that's what he's there for, says, I do not have a chance. <laughs> because you see how I can't walk? And anytime the water is stirred, I'm never the first person in the pool. And I never, ever will be because I can't walk. And so I'm laying here for 37 years, probably not in this exact spot, but I'm laying here for 37 years thinking there's no hope for my situation. This is never going to change. At this point, whatever hope he may have one time had, he no longer has. It's hopeless. And Jesus says, just pick up your mat and walk. And so the guy picks up his mat, and he walks, and he's just healed. He goes from hopeless to his whole world has changed in a moment, and he's carrying his mat around. And remember, we said seeing is believing, right? So this should be like the most believing guy on earth. But instead, as he carries his mat, he walks through, and some of our very religious people stop him because as it happens, it was the Sabbath, and you were not supposed to carry your mat on the Sabbath because that was work. And so they say, why are you carrying your mat? And he's like, Hey, hey, not my fault. That guy over there told me to carry my mat and, and heal me. And they're like, who is this horrible sinner who would do this work on the Sabbath? And the guy, instead of being like, um, hello, legs, the guy's just like, I don't know who he is. I don't know. And uh, a little while later, Jesus finds him and he's like, do you, do you realize what's happened to you? He's like, this is it. You've, you've met the son of man. This is a real thing. Now go and stop sinning. And the guy's like, <laughs> and he goes over to the Pharisees, and he's like, you want to know who did it? It's that guy. That guy's the one breaking the Sabbath. And then he leaves. <laughs> and John leaves us with this guy who was miraculously healed and still somehow doesn't seem to get it. Look, Jesus is alive. And people find themselves in all kinds of completely hopeless situations, and they believe themselves to be powerless. They believe that my situation is permanent. There's nothing anybody can do about it. I'm the victim here. There's no hope for me. I am trapped. And to that person, Jesus comes and says, I give you hope. And I can heal you. And I can set you up. And I can restore your life to you. And guess what? It doesn't matter whether or not you even believe in me. He still has power. Jesus is real and alive whether or not you believe it, right? It doesn't matter whether anybody believes in Jesus or not. He's still real. He's still alive. He still heals. He still does good. The grace that Jesus offers us is not contingent on our response to it. There were all kinds of people that I would look at their situation in life and I could think in my own heart and be like, well, they don't really deserve to get things better. They're just blaming everybody else for their own problems. Why should I help them? But the scriptures say we're all powerless. We're all dead in sin. We're all that guy lying by the pool with no help, wanting to blame everybody else. And Jesus finds us, gives us life, restores our legs, lets us walk, and he... <laughs> He doesn't do it based on how grateful we're going to be 
or how happy we are at the end of it. And some of us take that grace and turn it right or back around and point the finger right back at them and say, why did you make me like this? Look at what you made me do. Look at all the other problems I have in my life now because of you, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't care. He still heals. He still gives hope. He is alive. So now do we come to a simple one that all kids hear and means hardly anything to most of us, unfortunately, in this room. I guess fortunately, because the reason it doesn't mean much to us is because of our own privilege and luxury. Um, but I can tell you, Scripture is very clear that at the time, this was everyone's favorite miracle that Jesus performed. <laughs> and that is, one day, he's just he has quite a following of people now, but he's just on a mountaintop with his disciples, and they're talking, and they see the crowd coming, because the crowds followed them wherever they went. And the crowds found them, and they're coming towards them. And they're just looking. You could tell the disciples are looking out, and they could see the people coming, and they're like, oh, no. Because it's like thousands and thousands of people. It says 5,000 men, which some people think literally just means men. So there were also other women and children. Who knows? Maybe even if it was just 5,000 people, it was a lot of people. And uh, they're looking at it and they're like, uh, it's dinner time. And all these people are here and they're like poor as they could be. And what, what are we going to do? And so they're like, we're going to need to feed these people. We got nothing. We could do, and and they're and Jesus is like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna feed them, and they're like, <clears throat> that would take half a year's wages worth of money. So whatever that is to you now, imagine that somebody was like, could you buy dinner for these people for half of your year's wages? <laughs> um, and of course they're just like, yeah, we don't. That's not a thing we have. That's <laughs> that's that's not happening. And uh, and one of them says, well, there is this boy with these five little barley loaves and these two fish that, I don't know, his mom packed for his lunch or something. And um, we got that. And <laughs> Jesus is like, okay, sit down. He doesn't, anything, he doesn't bat an eye. He doesn't say, why would you suggest something as stupid as five loaves and two fishes? He says, okay, sit down and start handing it out. We just, we're just going to break these into pieces. We're going to thank God for providing, and you guys are just going to walk around, and you're going to hand it out, and they just hand it out, and they hand it out, and they hand it out, and they hand it out, and, he, and later he's like, hey, guys, don't let it go to waste. So they each go around with the basket, you know, and then they each have 12 baskets at the end that people are like, oh, I'm so full. I'll just put my leftovers in this basket, and sure enough, he feeds 5,000 people <laughs> with leftovers, <laughs> so they're full. They're not just like each getting one little bite. They're full. And he does this out of essentially nothing, out of the smallest of possible of offerings. And after this, it says later in John, the people are so excited to follow him. So excited to follow him. In fact, they would like him to be king even if they have to force it. Your Jesus is stock option Jesus. Uh, it's not the same Jesus as this Jesus. This Jesus is alive, and he knew what it was to be hungry. And he knew what it was to not have enough to eat. Remember, he had spent 40 days and 40 nights starving in the desert. And he saw these people, and he had compassion on them, and his heart hurt for them. And when people would come to us, as they regularly would in our neighborhood in Buenos Aires, and they would say, I don't know what we're going to eat tonight. We are hungry. 
Yeah, in that moment, yeah, we're looking to give them food. We're sharing meals. But we are also telling them the story of a Jesus who is alive, who knows they have real needs. There's a Jesus out there that just cares about spiritual things and just wants you to be have this spiritual thing. Look, you need real things in life. We're flesh and blood. That's part of our existence as human beings. We have needs, physical, tangible needs, food being primarily one of them. And thank God we live in a country that's rich. But you know what? There's plenty of kids that go to bed at night without meals. There's plenty of people that know hunger. They need a Jesus that's alive, that understands that, that cares about that. And instead of just being like, as he said to Satan, man does not live by bread alone. That was a good answer for him to Satan. But to the multitudes, he said, here's food. And to his disciples, he said, pull together your five loaves and two fish. Yeah, he could have done it out of nothing. But he asks us, come up with something, (laughs) share what you got, and then I will make that. Last, and I will spread that to everybody else because he's alive. Guys, he's alive, and he really cares about people, and he really cares about what they need. That story's on 520 in John chapter 6. And same page in chapter because it's right after that then. The disciples leave there. They get in a boat, and they start heading across the sea, and uh, Jesus stays behind. Um, so they're rowing across the boat. It starts to get real stormy. It says it's choppy. They're having a really hard time rowing. They're freaking out. Um, uh, you've heard stories about storms that involve Jesus, but John's story is a little different. He's not actually focused so much on the storm. They're like rowing out. They are having trouble. Clearly, there's there's some bad weather happening. Um, but what really freaks them out is <laughs> they turn and look, and here comes Jesus walking towards them <laughs> across the water. That's when John says they were afraid. <laughs> and I think they were a little afraid for their lives in the boat before, but they were super afraid of the ghost of Jesus that was coming towards them because what else could that be on a crazy, cloudy, stormy night coming across the water? They were freaked out. <laughs> they did not recognize him. I mean, they, they could tell it was Jesus, but they didn't recognize him as this flesh and blood Jesus that just fed people. They, he was something else something bigger and scarier by far and so they're afraid and when he gets close to the boat they're just like hmm and he says it's me (laughs) don't be afraid and they're like oh yeah this guy is walking across the water in the middle of a storm but also right we know him and it says with joy they let him into their boat and then instantly they were on the other side and safe (laughs) that was it he just came in, took them to the other side, and they were safe. If your Jesus isn't scary, he's not the right Jesus. If your Jesus isn't scary, is he really alive at all? The Jesus that John wants us to see was terrifying to them because he was more powerful than storms, than nature, and way, way, way beyond anything they could imagine. He was something else entirely, something they couldn't entirely comprehend. And if your Jesus fits into a nice, neat little box and you feel like you've got him in your pocket and you understand him and you and him, he's your co-pilot and that's okay. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to pick on any of these things, right? These are things, sayings that sometimes can be helpful and that's all great. But if he's, that's all he is, 
is just a Jesus who meets your needs, just a Jesus who can heal your kids, just a Jesus who brings you joy. And he's not also a Jesus who can control the universe. And he's not also a Jesus who can walk on water. And he's like also not a Jesus that sometimes comes to you in a storm and you don't even recognize him because he's doing something so much bigger and more powerful than you can understand. If that's not your Jesus, that's not the Jesus of Scripture. This Jesus is alive. This Jesus breaks out beyond comprehension. And people would come to us and they would tell us about impossible circumstances. And they would tell us about um, the, the pressures that they were facing that just seemed too big. And we would tell them about a Jesus that can walk on water. And a Jesus that was more powerful than anything that they could possibly face. So John's building something. I am, you can see him building up. Like I said, he doesn't worry so much about the order things, the events happened in, but he's, he's building towards something, what they learned as they began, they understood Jesus over time of being his friends. And uh, we get to John chapter nine, and it, he devotes the whole chapter to this story because, um, because it, it, there were layers to it. And, and basically it starts with, they're walking along and they see this man begging on the side of the road. He's blind. And if you were blind, you had no choice but to beg. There was no work you could do. And so they, um, they have an interesting theological and philosophical question for Jesus. And they say, um, Jesus, who sinned to make this man be born blind? He was born blind. He had nothing, it wasn't like an accident. And he, this is the way he was born. Was that his parents' sin? Or was that God knowing that he was going to sin? Like, where was the sin that caused this? Whose fault is it that he's blind? And Jesus is like, neither. <laughs> you guys are asking the wrong questions. He wasn't born blind because of anyone's sin. This is not a punishment for sin. This was so that God could show his glory in him and specifically show my glory in this moment. And then he stops. And, you know, this is the Jesus who could heal a sick boy without even having to be in the same room. But for some reason, this time to heal him, he spits on the ground, his own spit, makes a little mud with it because that's not disgusting, lifts it up and smears it on the guy's eyes and says, mm-hmm, gross, and says, uh, okay, now go over to this pool, wash it off, and you'll be healed. So the guy goes, and he washes it off, and he can see a thing which has he's never done before. So I'm sure that was extremely disorienting, and, but he can see. So all these people are like, they see this guy, and he's been begging all this time, and now he can see. And they're very confused, so confused that some of them are like, that was the blind guy, and now he can see. And other people are like, I don't think that's him. I think it's just a guy that looks like him, you know, like, because they're just so like, no, that, that, no, it's probably just a guy that looks like him. And so they go and they're like, are you the guy? And he's like, I'm the guy. I couldn't see, and now I can see. And they're like, what happened? And he's like, well, there's this guy, and he, and he just like made this mud, and he put this mud on my eyes, and I washed it off, and I can see. And they're like, amazing. Also, on the Sabbath? Because that's like a theme. And so they, they take him to the, to the leader, leaders, and they're like, um, this guy says that he was blind, and now he can see. And they're like, are you really that guy? Like, nobody wants to believe this story at all. And so that they, like, question him, and he's like, I don't know. Like, they keep saying, how could this be? And, like, tell us if the person that healed you was a sinner or not. And he's like, basically, his final answer after many questions is, look. Here's what I know. 
I was blind, and now I can see. And they, they're like, let's go ask his parents. And so they ask his parents, and the parents are, like, afraid. They're like, I don't know, he's an adult, ask him. And so then they go back to the guy, and they're like, come on. We need you to admit that the guy who healed you is a sinner. And he's like, what is wrong with you people? How could, God doesn't listen to sinners. So if, if God used this guy and he healed me, and apparently we find out in that moment, of all the miracles that God's prophets have done over all the years, including bringing people back from the dead, no one has ever healed someone from blindness. So that's why nobody believed it, because it was like an unheard of thing. And so he's like, this has to be from God. Is that why you're asking me, do you also want to be this man's disciples? And then they're furious and whatever, and then they leave. And, and the guy goes and he finds Jesus. Of course, he didn't know what Jesus looked like. So Jesus has to introduce himself. <laughs> like, hey, I'm the one who healed you. And, uh, and the guy worships him and follows him. And Jesus is like, this is what I've come for. So people who think they can see <laughs> find out they really don't. But people who can't see now can. The only way to come to this Jesus who is alive is to be at the bottom. When you're at the top and you think you've got it all figured out, this Jesus is an endless mystery. And you keep asking and you keep winding further up and further further away. But when you are at the bottom and you have no hope and your situation is impossible, and nobody will even take you seriously, and you meet this Jesus, all you can say at the end of it is, I was blind and now I see. I understand something I didn't understand before, and I can't explain it. I can't understand it. And when Jesus comes and says, you know, will you, will you worship the Son of Man? And he's like, I just tell me who he is. And he's like, I'm him. The guy's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, because all I know was my condition was impossible. And now everything is possible. I was destitute, and now I have everything I need. I was dependent on a world that hated me, and now I'm free. That Jesus is alive. That Jesus means something to people when there is no hope left to be had, when there is nothing but a life of impossibilities, when there's nothing but barriers, when there's nothing but no's, when there's nothing but darkness. That Jesus can enter in and bring sight. And to the wise, and to the educated, and to those really concerned about their rules, that Jesus means nothing. That Jesus is an enemy. And they don't like it when that Jesus brings sight to the blind. When the people that they look down upon, when the people that they assumed were sinners, that, that were in their situation because it was their own fault, the Jesus that says uh, that only helps those who help themselves, that Jesus is not this Jesus. This Jesus is the one that comes who helps those who realize they can't help themselves. And there's no remedy to be had except him. That story's on 522 in John chapter 9. And then, just one page over, in John chapter 11 is the most personal story <laughs> of Jesus' life. And John makes a point of mentioning at least three or four times in this story 
how much Jesus loved these people. <laughs> so he has his disciples who are everywhere with him, but along the way, he's also made some other deep, deep friends. And one of them is this is these people, and we've, there's several stories about them throughout the Gospels, so we know they were close friends of his. It's Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, and they were people he visited regularly and that he loved. And at one point, they're somewhere further away when they get news from Mary and Martha that Lazarus is deathly sick, and they're saying, please come and heal him. Because, you know, if one of your best friends... <laughs> can heal people, <laughs> that's a great thing to have in your back pocket. And so they're like, okay, Lazarus is sick, no problem. We'll call Jesus. He'll take care of it. So they send a messenger. There's plenty of time. The messenger gets there. He's like, they say, come and heal Lazarus. And he's like, and John says, right in that moment, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and their brother. <clears throat> and he was like, let's wait a couple days. <laughs> and so he doesn't go. And a couple days later, he says to his disciples, all right, we need to go back there. They're like, it's going to be a little dangerous. And he's like, no, we, we got to go. Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're like, Jesus, if he's asleep, that'll probably help him heal. You should let him stay asleep. And he's like, no, no, let me be more clear. <laughs> Lazarus died. And they're like, so they, all right, we're going to follow you back there. We get it. We know why you have to go. We know what these people mean to you. So they follow him back there, even though it's kind of dangerous. And they get to the town. And he doesn't even enter the town when word is going ahead of him that, that he's coming. And Mary and Martha are like, whatever. Their brother's been dead for four days by now. So, <laughs> so they're in their house with all their neighbors around. They're mourning. They're grieving. <laughs> they're not doing much else. And Martha hears he's coming. She gets up. And, like, you know, we've heard other stories from Martha. So we can kind of imagine what she was like a little bit, like, take chargey. So she gets up. And she goes to Jesus. And I'm, I, I, it seems pretty clear from the context that she is so angry. <laughs> and she says straight up, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What on earth? <laughs> and he's like, there's going to be a resurrection. And she's like, right, 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 right. I mean, yes, obviously, someday we're all going to be resurrected, and now the death doesn't matter. But how is that helpful? <laughs> and he's like, no. <laughs> I'm the resurrection. And I don't know that she understood, but something clicks in her mind, and she's like, okay. So she goes back, and you realize that Mary heard, also heard that Jesus was coming and didn't even get up. That's where she was at. She did not go to see him. She just stayed in the house, like, mm, okay, sure, he's coming. But when Martha comes to her and says, Jesus is here and he's looking for you, <laughs> she's like, okay. So she gets up and goes. She says the same thing. Her sister says, Jesus, if you would have come, you could have healed him. He wouldn't be dead. And it just says Jesus saw her, and this time the people followed her. So there's all these crying people, and she's crying, and Martha's crying, and Jesus looks around, and he's just like, mm-hmm. And he starts crying <laughs> because he loved them so much. <laughs> and he's looking at this pain that he could have prevented and didn't. <laughs> and it's just killing him. It says his heart is just heavy and he's just brokenhearted and he just cries for this pain that they're feeling. And then he's like, okay, God, thanks for listening to me. And yes, you're always listening to me. I just said that so everyone else would realize it. And then he goes, roll away the stone from his tomb. And Martha, again, is like not just ever following anyone's instructions exactly. So she's like, um, Jesus, four days in a tomb means it's going to smell awful. And he's just like, just, just 
roll away. You're going to see something here. So she does. They do. They roll away the stone, and he says, Lazarus, <laughs> come forth. And here he comes, walking out, and he's alive. Our Jesus, this Jesus, is alive, and he holds life in his hand. When I got the call that my friend Mario had died and that I needed to go take his wife and his sons to go identify the body, so I'm driving over to their house to get them and to drive them over to, to, the, to the morgue on the other side of the city. And I thought about the years that Mario had resisted the gospel, that he had lived in a pretty open rebellion growing up, hearing about God, and his mother was a believer, and he sent his kids to, to our children's club, and um, his wife had been baptized, and his kids had been baptized, but he was always resistant. And just six months before, he finally relented and gave in to Jesus and got baptized. And for four or five months, his family saw him as a transformed man. And then he was hit by a car, and he was killed, and he was gone. And um, the next day, uh, we're in a funeral home. Things happen fast there. They bury the body here, 24, 48 hours. And next day, we're at the, the funeral home, and family and friends and everybody's around. And everybody knows that Mario believed in Jesus, and they want to know, where was he? Where was Jesus? Why couldn't this Jesus that he loved and that he believed in, why couldn't he save them? Why didn't Jesus show up on time? Why wasn't he where he was supposed to be when I thought he was going to be there? But see, this Jesus is alive. And so I shared with them that this Jesus that Mario believed in loved Mario and he loved them. And he is not a Jesus who is high and distant sitting on a throne in heaven, you know, with some crown on his head, far away, removed, imperial. But he's a Jesus who cries and weeps with his friends. And he's a Jesus who sometimes does things that cause tremendous pain, but he owns it. And he shows up there, and he's a Jesus who resurrects the dead because he is resurrection itself. He is life itself. He isn't just alive. He is life. And Mario knew that. And that night in his home, in his one room shack home with his widow and their six kids and his oldest son says, my father's left me no inheritance, but he left me a spiritual inheritance because I know how much he loved Jesus, and we saw him change. When you see that, when you know that that is our Jesus, a living, breathing, real Jesus, that when we say, have a personal relationship with God, have a personal relationship with Jesus, that's not just a sense to some facts. That's not you memorize a list. Jesus was a perfect man. He was the son of God, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again three days later, and then he ascended into heaven. It's not like that. It's not just knowing some things, and it's not just knowing his teaching. He's alive, and you can know him, and you can actually have a relationship with him and talk to him and accept the fact that he's bigger than you and that he does things you don't understand and that he's powerful, but that he actually still cares about what you need, that he's going to weep with you. 
That is the Jesus that we say come to and have life. And when we say we are the body of Christ, we're the physical representation of Jesus as the church on the earth. That's the Jesus that we're representing. A Jesus who cares about joy and a Jesus who cares about children and a Jesus who helps the helpless and a Jesus who feeds the hungry and a Jesus who doesn't judge those for the situation that they were born into but lifts them out of it and a Jesus that weeps with the mourning. That's who we're supposed to be. That's our Jesus. That's the life that we offer the world. That's the life that we receive. So we come to the time where we share in his body and his blood, not as a ritual, but as a remembrance of this Jesus who's still alive. If you don't know this Jesus, please come and talk to us. This is it. This is him. This is what we're so excited about. This is why we do all the things we do, because he is alive. And if you don't remember any other thing, remember that this Jesus is alive. If you are a believer, then come and celebrate him. Celebrate the fact that we, when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we remember his death. And we can remember his death with joy because he's resurrection and he is life. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for being alive and thank you for being life. Thank you for all the things you've taught us for all the things that you instructed us, Lord, but just thank you so much for being real, a real person with real friends and real flesh that was really torn and real blood that really bled and real tears that were really shed. We love you so much and we are so thankful to be in your presence and for the privilege of knowing you and for the life that you bring us. It's in your name we pray, amen.